Welcome to Criminal Thinking Deterred with your host, Tony Moore. Here we talk about how to take responsibility for your decisions, stop hurting people, become a positive force in your community, and end the criminal thinking that deters everyone. Welcome to Criminal Thinking Deterred. I'd like to thank uh, my producer, Philip Day, my editor, Earl Weaver, and my new guest, Charmaine Harris, who's uh, coming on to talk about his journey through his incarcerations, his drug usage, his past life of criminal thinking and criminal behavior that he has made a total impact on a community uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, to change his life and now to run a fatherhood initiative program and other entrepreneurial things that he has uh, endeavored to do. Charmaine, welcome. Appreciate you having me, man. Thank you, thank you, appreciate you. Yes, I had to have you, man. Um, You are a very impactful young man and you have shown that your perseverance is is strong. Your determination to change your life was just, uh, has been inspiring to a lot of us here at home in Kenosha. No. Uh, when you think about when you think about your 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 journey, tell us a little bit about what made it possible for you to change your life. Um. Well, yeah. Again, first of all, I appreciate y'all having me, and uh, you know, I like to talk about my journey in this type of mind frame of uh, going from prison to pardon. Um, as you all know, I recently received a pardon from the governor of Wisconsin. Um, which reinstated all of my rights, but that's the end of the story. Yes. Beginning of the story, man, started with me growing up on the north side of Racine, Wisconsin. Uh, gun violence, drugs, uh, everywhere you go. Uh, it was tough, you know. At a young age, you learn a lot of things. Eleven years old, twelve years old, you think you're a man. And I always talk about the story how when I went around my neighborhood when I was about eleven, asking for for dollars for my birthday. Um, I talked to a guy and he didn't give me a dollar, but he gave me some, some substance and uh, some advice. He gave me two bags of crack cocaine and he said, stop begging people for money. This is how you make money. Now, you know, when I tell that story, people would be like, oh, wow, you know, that's crazy. But you got to think about where he learned that from. Um, and then the culture in which we was was growing up in. And so I didn't go out and become like some drug dealer at 11, but I always say a seed was planted at that time and it took root later in my life. So went through some stuff with my mom and dad, um, custody battles and all of that, ended up moving to Kenosha. And while my, my my living situation was a little better, I still had that behavior, still had that mentality that I learned early on. So. Um, got involved in, you know, similar situations in Kenosha. And here's the thing, Tom, you know, I was always a bright kid um, mm-hmm. to get my work done, but I was just called to this street kind of life, um, whether it be gang banging, selling drugs and all of that. And went into this spiral of getting in trouble, caught my first case at the age 16, um, got a bunch of 
driving without a license tickets. I got about 15 mug shots in the database. Uh, and so then I moved up to the big leagues in 2009, where I was eventually charged with possession of uh, crack cocaine and um, delivering cocaine. And so then I was sentenced to a year, got out, messed up again, ended up being revocated and going to prison. Now, the first time I only went to jail, second time I went to prison. And when I seen kind of how prison was, it was completely different than the county jail. I'm like, something got to change. You know, you you six hours away from home now. Can't nobody just walk down the street and come visit you. You know, they, right. they, they, they strip you naked and, you know, do all of that. So that was the beginning of the process where it clicked in my mind. Like, I can't be living this life. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Well, let me ask. And when you did that last prison bit, any programs you use, any any religious programs or any secular programs that you use to help jar your understanding of why you needed to change? So, yeah, when I was sentenced, I was actually granted, um, what do you call it, permission to go to uh, the Challenge Incarceration Program, which is boot camp, uh, commonly known as boot camp. And um, that program completely shifted the gears of my mind. Uh, <clears throat> not many people are eligible for this program, but since I was a younger guy, I believe I was 23 at the time, 22 at the time, I was eligible. And so in that program, you know, we going over everything from alcohol and other drug um, assessments, okay, uh, criminal thinking, rational thinking, uh, we talking about career development and all of that type of stuff. And so on top of all of that, we also learn in work ethic. I worked in the kitchen while I was in there. Some guys go out and uh, cut trees down. Mm -hmm. Then also um, physical, physical training. I can't forget that. You know, we, we working out all day, every day. We got to run two miles. We got to be able to do 100 sit-ups in a minute. We got to do... Um, pull-ups, you know, got to be able to do a certain level of pull-ups. So just think about the, the like, the, the total package of personal development, physical, mental, all of that. So I was fortunate enough to go through that program and successfully complete, and that shaved off two years of my time. Okay. Um, and I got out early. But while that was great, you know, my spiritual development was the biggest thing. I always talk about, you know, people might think of prison and think, you know, violence, somebody going to hurt me while I was in there. And these can be scary moments. But the scariest moments for me was three in the morning when I'm laying on that bunk and nobody's there around. And all I can do is talk to God. And I'm thinking about all the mistakes I made in my life. <clears throat> I'm thinking about my dad and his, his constant praying and trying to get me to go this direction. I'm thinking about the basketball coaches, the football coaches that – saw potential in me, but I just didn't see it in myself. So right. I, I feel like that was like the greatest part of my development. Everything else complemented that. So you used the holistic approach in your thought process to see that it was possible to change. And when you came back to the community, you said you, you got, got out of the incarceration uh, challenge program did you do any community programs that help you to stay stable? Oh, yeah. So um, <clears throat> 2013, I came back 
And, you know, for anybody listening to this podcast, especially if you formerly incarcerated like myself, um, there's going to be challenges. Man, the challenge is going to come great. And a lot of the challenges are internal um, because what you believe about yourself, you already got societal stigma, but now you're telling yourself, like, I'm a felon. Nobody going to help me. And the more you start to, like, sit on that type of mindset, the more you believe it. And then now the way you communicate the world to the world is different. So to your question, you know, when you come back, and especially when you get out early, you got to do something called aftercare. And this is where, you know, you kind of just keep sharpening your skills when you come back. And so, um, you know, had a, a, a wonderful program probably one of the top programs around at the time and still around, but uh, Birds of a Feather uh, through Tony Moore. I had to go to um, do aftercare there and focus on like my anger management, um, my addiction, uh, my criminal thinking and things like that. And that kind of just kept me focused at the time uh, until I was able to, you know, find a job and just really stabilize myself. But aftercare was so important during that time. On top of that, I was on a leg monitor so it kind of limited me from like going right back into like the way I used to do things because I couldn't, I literally couldn't. But what I could do was the aftercare programs, which greatly served me in my reentry process. Yeah, that uh, community continuing of care is a is a major part to even if it's not just alcohol drug focus, if it's employment focused and someone to share with you how to develop the entrepreneurial spirit to be able to trust yourself to go forward. I like what you said when you said the internal piece is me. I have to deal with the internal renewing or transformation of myself built on this new aftercare approach. I got to be yeah. able to say coming out of the prison that I can, I will, I must type of conversation to yourself that I can't fall back. Now, yeah. as, as you went forward, and, and you're an author, and you went into, I watched you go into the, why was it important for you to go into the dad approach, the fatherhood uh, initiative approach? Why was that important for you at, in your aftercare? Um, just, to, just to kind of piggyback on what you just said there, man, you know, Tom, think about like all the trauma that we went through, you know, and sometimes we normalize that trauma. But like when you go through these cognitive cognitive based development theories, uh, you learn that it's not so normal. But you also learn that a lot of people went through it as well. And so um, once you introduce to something new, it's like, oh, I I I, I knew this, you know, or <laughs> I felt this. But the programs kind of like bring it out of you. But to your question, man, you know, my journey with this fatherhood initiative. You know, is one of a of an amazing story. I won't be too brief. I mean, I won't be too long. I'll try to keep it brief. But mm -hmm. uh, when I came back uh, in February of 2013, my girlfriend and my now wife was pregnant a month later. So, you know, I leave that imagination. Y'all know, <laughs> y'all already know what's happening there. So, um, I was fortunate enough to not have biological children when I went in. But when I had my when I came back, I had my first biological son, Armani James Harris, who's nine years old. And once I had my son, man, this just changed my life, man. I said, I refuse to lose 
after this. I refuse to have my son coming up to the prison, um, hearing those door sounds in the lobby, eating a nasty food, um, you know, and, and just being a part of that prison culture. Because I believe if kids see that and they think that's normal, they might think it's normal when they get older. So I had my first son and that just changed my entire mentality. I, before I was selfish, like all I had to worry about was myself. Now I had to worry about my, my wife and my kids. Um, and so that happened. And then when he was about 10 months old, I walked into an organization called the WIC office, Women, Infants, and Children. And while there, I was approached by a lady and, you know, she told me about this fatherhood event they were about to do. And as a new dad, I was like, you know, I'm definitely interested in that. At the time, I'm, I'm reading your latest T.D. Jakes books, watching Dr. Phil, Oprah, all of these type of shows, Ayanna Benzant, you know, just constantly consuming information so I can be the best dad I can be. So when that opportunity came, I said, when, where, what time? So I came out to the event, and after about 15 minutes of sitting there, um, we realized that I was the only father that showed up that day. Wow. And this is not due, due to their, you know, lack of promotion. They have been promoting a, a program for about a month. And so that's when my spidey senses or my mind just kind of clicked. And uh, the supervisor walked in and I can sense the disappointment in her face and her eyes. And I said, hey, you know, I'm from Kenosha. Maybe I can help, you know, do something. Maybe I can volunteer. And to my surprise, she said yes. And this is after getting a bunch of no employment. I even got told no for a volunteer opportunity one time. And so she said, yes, uh, I started promoting the event that I was about to do on, all online and posting flyers all around the neighborhood. I had my event uh, about a month or two months later. And on the day of my event, we had over 25 fathers. Wow. And now these are all the guys that, you know, I used to run with the street and running the streets in with, but now we had changed and most of us had kids. So from a leadership perspective, I know in her mind, she like, this guy is really influential. He knows a lot of people. So um, we started having this conversation. She said it was a job opportunity. So for about a period of six months, I would call, email, or stop in and just say, hey, you know, I just want to remind you, you told me about this job opportunity. I was consistent and persistent for six months, all the way to the point where I almost gave up. But then I got an email. She said, we got some funding for you um, to come in and come on part-time for 10 hours a week. That led to a full-time job. I never done this type of work before in my life as like a social worker. And then in the first year of me doing the program, I had over a hundred fathers go through what was called the dedicated dads program. Yes. And so this sparked, you know, a, a, a huge movement, you know, the district attorney reached out to me, heard my story. He helped me get back in front of the, um, the, the judge. He got me taken off parole four years early than I was supposed to. So I wasn't supposed to be off to 2020. I ended up getting off in 2016. Um, but during that process, Tone, when I learned about fatherhood and the value of it and me being a father and then talking to these guys that were fathers and hearing their stories, and, you know, one of the first things we talk about in the sessions is like your father in history. And most of them, you know, grew up without their dad or not the greatest example of a father. 
And mm -hmm. as I started to like tap into that type of conversation and dialogue, those first sessions became extremely emotional. And, you know, the content that I was giving them, it just helped bring out what was in them. And the, the common mindset was my dad was this way. So I'm going to make sure I'm this way, a, a different way for my kids. And I'm going to set a different example for my kids. And so as I became this fatherhood leader, another responsibility came upon me where I'm like, I got to represent for all of the fathers in the community. And this program, you know, created a, a big, it filled a huge void in the community that wasn't here. It was, it was, it is and was the only fatherhood program around. And the irony in it is it was at an organization called WIC. And y'all know what WIC stand for? Y'all know what WIC, you know what WIC stand for, Tom? Uh, women's uh, infant and children. Uh, okay. What 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 didn't you hear when you when you said that? Fathers, always fathers. There you go. So uh, it was ironic that we was doing that kind of program, but it took off Tony. That's been a platform for my success in life. Yeah, one of one of the the successful things that came out of your your uh, tenure with uh, WIC was the father daughter dance. It is highly acclaimed. And I watched other communities grow after I seen you put it together. Then I watched other communities do it more and more to the to the fact that some mothers and mothers and sons started having dances. But mm -hmm. your father and daughter dance, did you have any impact from that or any success stories behind that? Oh, yeah, man. So uh, in addition to the curriculum that I was using, which was nurturing fathers curriculum um so that was like the serious stuff you know we come in we had these good conversations but on top of that we, we do community events so we started getting you know recognized getting bucks tickets donated to us we're seeing raiders tickets um at least once a month i was doing something with the uh, fathers and families this is where the whole family was invited we'd go swimming we've been to museums we do, we just go to the park sometimes, have like a little mini picnic. But uh, the daddy-daughter dance was something that was sparked. We're going into our sixth annual daddy-daughter dance this year, which is will be June 16th here in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And um, it's just amazing to see how the fathers and the girls light up, man, when they come to the dance. And it's it's, it's such a, a, a small, it seems like such a small thing, but it's huge. And because the memories that are created, because of the, the the connection that are made between moms and dads, sometimes they're not in a relationship with the mother, but the mothers almost 100% always agree to like, let dad get the, get the daughter for the daddy-daughter dance. Mm -hmm. And You know, success stories, just watching a little girl that was, say she was 10 when she started or nine when she started and she's 16. You know, now she's 15 and she's in high school and them wanting to come back and now become like volunteers and help out, like organize. So I, I call one of the little girls to come up with a theme for this year's uh, dance. And so she gave me the theme, which is uh, Dancing with the Stars, Daddy Daughter Dance. All and right. so, you know, it's just a beautiful thing just to watch those little girls grow and, you know, be able to have this type of event that's like bringing people together. Yeah. So uh, on the backside of that, 
you were blessed to have an opportunity to get a pardon, which I know because I'm going through it now myself, uh, because I was inspired by your situation, saying that all men are duty bound to be able to get a pardon to help show that it's possible if they can. Because I always thought I didn't need one. You know, I've got, got master's degrees. I got things that I got going on in my life that I really don't need a pardon. It, I'm, I'm good. But I actually do need a pardon because I need to show the hope of the turnaround uh, and getting it as a result of changing life so that people can see that the pattern. I know that you did it and it motivated a lot of people to pursue it. What made you think that a pardon was necessary or even possible for Man. you? <clears throat> so, like I said, you know, I was removed from parole four years early. So when it comes to a pardon, you have to be removed from any type of paper or pro parole for five years before you can apply. Yeah. So when that happened, my time clock started early to be eligible for a pardon. Like you, I wasn't thinking about it because I'm like, I ain't gonna be done in 2020 and then 2025 I can apply. But I ended up becoming eligible in 21 because of my... Um, you know, sentence modification. And, you know, when it comes to a pardon, man, when you think about everything that you lose when it comes to having a, being a felon, you know, you can't, you can't vote, you know, I mean, not, not, you can't, not, let me not, let me correct that. You can't mm -hmm. vote while on parole. Yes. You can vote after, but um, you, de you denied the right to run for public office. Uh, so many professional licenses you might be denied for. And then just that overall stigma of being a felon and going into a job and then having to explain yourself every single time. You get so nice with your elevator pitch that, you know, it's like you, you become a master of your own story, which you should, but that pardon just lifts so many weights off of you, man. And, you know, once I seen that the governor, Tony Evers was in office and, his mindset around pardons. I'm like, it's possible. It can happen now. Because we know the governor before him, he didn't even do any pardons, none at all. Whereas the governors before him, they all did at least some. And so when I seen it was possible, I realized like this pardon is not really for me. The pardon is for me to give hope to others that they can do it as well. And it is our right to be eligible for that, especially for some of our low-level offenses or whatever offenses. Mm -hmm. But if we show a track record of like turning around and you do you do you realize how hard it is to stay like out of anything for five years after you get off parole? Like that's an achievement in itself. So the fact that somebody even eligible to apply, that should be the, the, the consideration, you know, that should be the greatest consideration in itself. Yes. But once I seen that, man, I'm like, I got to do this, not for me, but to show other guys that they can do it as well if they apply themselves and do what they're supposed to do um, once they return from prison. So in your criminal justice teaching at, at the college as an adjunct professor, do you teach that to incoming students, some of the possibilities or some of the, the hindrance or barriers that ex-offenders face? coming home or or being 
label as a felon or ex-offender? Do you teach Oh yeah, that? man. Yeah, so um, you know, I was fortunate enough to be, you know, asked to be a adjunct professor at the University of Wisconsin Parkside here in Kenosha. Um, and you guess what I'm teaching, Tom? You know what I'm teaching? What are you teaching? Criminal justice. Yes, criminal justice. Criminal justice. A, for, a former teach a former criminal teaching criminal justice. Yes. Right. So I bring a different element to the to the game. I bring a different avenue to the game. And what I love about teaching is the how much I'm learning. And so like I, I knew like a lot of these things like theoretically, but now I'm seeing it from a practical level. So my first class was introduction to criminal justice, which kind of talked about, you know, systems of oppression and mass incarceration and people getting locked up. Now I'm teaching something called community corrections. What happens when they are released? And so with my students, I'm giving it to them raw and real and direct and sharing it from my personal perspective. And so much so that one of the students just nominated me for like his most impactful uh, professor. And they want to recognize me um, at the baseball game on the 26th. But I show them everything and I tell them everything. And even when I was getting my part and I told them, if you come on to the interview, because the interview was broadcasted live on YouTube, um, mm -hmm. you'll get extra credit just for watching. Uh, so some of them came on and watched me like deliver my seven minute uh, speech to 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 get my um to get my part in. But I'm talking about talking to them about everything right now. Currently, I've got to read my you know notes and all of that for next Tuesday about the process of returning, you know, dealing with a probation and parole officer, dealing with that stigma of being a felony, I mean, uh, having a felony conviction, um, employment, you know, seeing that, you know, a lot of times people who do the greatest when they come back are those that, are, you know, take time to get educated. The higher the degree, the less likely you are to recidivate or return back to prison. So going through all of these things, and uh, like I said, as I'm teaching it, I'm learning. You know, I knew all of these things, but just seeing the history of it and the practicality of it, it's exciting, man. I, I know mm -hmm. you can hear it in my voice. He's yes, yes. Talking. Yeah, yeah. As um, as you have come through on your journey, uh, everyone needs someone to to look to. Was was your situation in changing? Uh, did you need mentors, or do you have mentors? that you go to uh, when trouble arises or issues come up? Do you have anyone that you can go and help sort out some of those issues and see that they're not as tough as they appear? Oh yeah, man. Um, especially early on. And uh, I, I forget, I, I read this thing about like the law of 33. So you want to be around 33% of people that's like similar to you. You Then you want to have 33% of people that's like, above you in, in mm -hmm. terms of like life. And then you also want to have 33% of the people that's like, you are mentoring and helping them come up. And that's what kind of keep you balanced. But um, so like being a mentor showed me that the power of having a mentor. Yeah. And um, yeah. especially early on when you, get the, when you get them negative thoughts and you know, I relied on you a lot of times when early on when I needed that, you know, words of encouragement, especially dealing with family or 
feeling like I'm about to give up or even when I was working at the WIC office, I'm like, you know, it's, it's another ball game when you go into like a corporate setting and a lot of guys can't really do this because they, they don't know how to make that shift. But, you know, they, yes. they might they might snap out like when the, the manager say, go do this, this and this and say, um, you ask why. And they say, just do it. You know, uh, you, you got to learn how to battle through email, you know, for our conversation earlier. Uh, that's basically putting awareness out there. Like, look, we talked about this before. But uh, having those mentors, you know, uh, you know, guys like you, my guy, Rick, my guy Ray Roberts, um, you know, Tim Mahone was a mentor. Uh, a, a lot of these people that just kind of seen me coming up and they kind of gravitated towards me in the first place. Uh, obviously, my dad is my number one mentor. Yes. You know, yes. being a bishop and being a pastor for that spiritual element. Uh, my wife, you know, uh, is, a, is a mentor, you know, helping me when there's, you know, nobody else to talk to and I just need a sounding board. So mentorship is huge, especially early on. But once you get to a level where you start mentoring, you, you realize your responsibility and you know that you can't pour from an empty cup. Yes. And that's what a lot of guys do. They, they fill up just a little bit, then they pour out. But you got to fill your cup up. And then if you pour out a little, little bit, it's still some in there. But how do you fill your cup up? You fill your cup up through your mentors, and then you fill you help other fill fill their cups up. And so, and, and you remain around faucets, and those are your mentors. The faucets are the ones that's pouring into you, so that you can pour up. And you know, as the Bible say, uh, when He started blessing you, you know, your, your cup will run over, and your yeah. cup runs over for the people that you serve. In. Yes. And, and as an influencer, as you have developed into a major influencer uh, in your circle, your circle uh, of knowledgeable people and uh, people who are educated and people who are not educated. You become a leader. How how would you tell a young man to prepare for the leadership position? What would you tell him to do in order to embrace Okay, you're gonna to have to take take the baton someday, and you're gonna to have to run with it. Uh, what what would you tell them to prepare for? Um, I think one of the things I I left out uh, was the fact that you know during that entire journey of me like getting all of these awards and getting taken off parole early, I also uh, was given um, uh, a full ride scholarship to Carthage College where I uh, got my degree in business and marketing. And I went back and got my uh, master's degree the, the year, the next year in, in business as well. And so what I would tell somebody is um, self-awareness is key, you know, but how do you become self-aware? Studying yourself, uh, studying everything around you, you know, um, yes. there's something called emotional intelligence by a guy named Rich Boyatzis. And he talks about, you know, self-awareness, social awareness, uh, then self-management, and then relationship management. Once you become aware of who you are, you can then learn how to navigate through this world. It don't matter what somebody say about you because you know who you are. They're they going to talk about you. They're going to say negative things. But if you have a something inside you that accepts that, then you'll become that. There's an African proverb that says, uh, if there's no enemy within, the enemy outside can do nothing. Yes. So you got to get rid of that enemy within you 
so that you can be your, your greatest self and reach your greatest potential. So for that young guy that's listening to this podcast and, you know, wanting to go to the next level of leadership, you first have to deal with yourself. How can you help somebody else if you don't help yourself? And I'll give another analogy. I know we got to wrap up here, but um, there's a story of a guy, you know, walking down the road and there's three guys doing some work. He talks to the first guy. He asks him what he's doing. And um, he says, uh, I'm, I'm building, a, um, I'm, I'm, I'm working on his building. And then he goes to the next guy. The other guy says, uh, you know, I'm just doing my job. Then he goes to the next guy and he says, I'm on a team that's building a cathedral. I'm on a team that's building a church. And one of my favorite speakers is a guy named Inky Johnson. He says, uh, how you view what you do determines how you do what you do. Yes. So how do you how do you view what you're doing when you come back? How do you view what you're doing when you become a leader? Do you see it as just, I have to do this or I get to do this? It's a privilege for me to do this. And when it comes to leadership, you got to see it as, I'm not only doing this for myself, but I'm doing it for the masses. Yes. When you, when you talk about the perspective of, uh, of the mindset, the mindset and the shift of the mindset, criminal thinking deterred has to be looked at. And I just need to alter my thought process and thinking process as it leads to my, what action will I perform? So in criminal thinking deterred, what we, we look at, if I look at my mind and, and analyze and evaluate the thought process and the, and the thoughts that lead to my thinking, I'll make better choices about my freedom. You've been out uh, almost what, 10 years now? Yeah, 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. So in those 10 years, how much have your thinking matured as you went through seeing that it's possible to change? I always say this, I didn't necessarily change. Mm-hmm. How I saw how I saw myself change, in which I just kind of just told y'all like how you view what you do determines how you do what you do. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing, Tone. Like we already have it in us, but we just need to be exposed to the information. Uh, when I talk about the guy that gave me the drugs when I was little, I often think about like, what if somebody said, "Go rake my leaves, go cut my grass." my mindset on how to make money would have been different. And as I'm going through business classes and all that, I'm like, you know, I was doing this already. I just needed to learn the language, you know. I, I'm, I'm good with my words. That's why I'm a speaker. You know, yeah. uh, I used to do it in the streets when I was selling drugs. You know what they call that in business? Persuasion techniques. Okay. I'm a very <laughs> persuasive person. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's all about just, when you when you in the process of changing, when you see something new and you realize like I was doing, I already thought like that, but you now you exposed to the like practical concepts or the scientific concepts or the theoretical concepts. That's when you begin to change. Like I've already known this, but now I can apply it to something different. Instead of applying it to the streets and negativity, I can apply it to more positive things like my family, my career, and my business. Thank you, thank you. As as we wrapped up, wrap up here, and uh, I'm very thankful that you came on the show. Uh, you shed a lot of light on the possibilities of the hope, and I have watched you, and I will continue to watch you, and let you know that we appreciate you. We appreciate all that you have 
come to know all that you have come to freely share with the world in, in Kenosha, the community uh, that you live in, to all people. You have been an inspiration and you have also inspired me to continue to move on. And that's big when I say the student starts teaching the teacher that he needs to be able to be able to be a student. That yes, was sir. a powerful message that you gave me that I said, okay, I got to go next next level. And and you can always, always count on me. i like to have you on the show again uh, in a few months and to see what you're doing and see how the new book is coming out. Uh, the new book is called what? Sentence to Success, How Prison Became My Launch Pad for Success in Life, Family, and Business. So it'll be about have... a couple, it'll be a couple months before that come out, though. Yes, yes. Well, you take your time and you do it right. And uh, God bless you. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate you. You've been listening to Criminal Thinking Deterred with Tony Moore. Visit our website, www.criminalthinking.net. Follow Criminal Thinking on Facebook and Instagram. Also, listen, follow, and download Criminal Thinking Deterred on the major podcast channels. Thank you, and have a productive day.